want to uh, just acknowledge and I'm so thankful for Andrew and for Brandon um, the last couple weeks um, uh, just preaching God's word and being faithful. It's, it's such an encouragement to me to know that no matter, and this has always been our prayer, no matter where I go, whether I go home to be with the Lord or, or I'm going on a trip that I think uh, we're doing a good work here, beloved, all of us, by laying the foundation of God's word and the gospel, because that is really what we as a church need, right? And the, the hope and the prayer is that the gospel will still be preached here um, when I'm long gone and when you are long gone. The gospel will keep being preached, and, and so it's just such an encouragement. And I'm sure Pastor Bob Litz, when he was here all these many years, that was his desire too, right, uh, to have the gospel preached here from... Uh, from this place. And so we get to do that um, every Sunday, and it's such a blessing. So thank you, brothers, for your faithfulness to that end. Uh, this Sunday, we have, um, we have the privilege of uh, actually going back to the Gospel of John. Um, and we're going to pick up in John chapter 18. And so um, in this chapter, John is moving uh, from the public ministry of Jesus, and we're moving into uh, the suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, uh, we're moving into what sometimes is called his passion, his passion. And really, all the Gospels move to this climactic event, right? A lot of things, some of the Gospels tell the same story, and some tell one story and not another, but all of them actually speak of this event because without what we're about to read in these final chapters of John, uh, there is no gospel. There is no good news if Jesus does not go to make an atoning sacrifice for our sin and raise again uh, from the dead. And what I love about the gospels in particular um, really the whole Bible, um, is that what gives it a ring of authenticity is that it all communicates the same truths regarding Jesus from different perspectives. So when you read even the Old Testament, it's all talking about Jesus. It's all talking about the coming from Genesis 3.15, right? It's all, it's like the Old Testament begins very narrow about this promise, and then it, it broadens out into this beautiful story of Israel and, and their life as a nation and how all of that points to Jesus. And then it all comes in the New Testament and it comes back in as we come to Christ but all of these things that are written are written over thousands of years by hundreds of different men, right, and, and women that have written the scriptures. Like, God has taken all of these people and these millennia that have gone by, I think it's over 1,500 years the Bible was written, and, and he's brought it all into a unified, co coherent uh, message about Jesus. It really is incredible. That, that, all, they're, that all of these things written, they're, they're not contradictory, they're complementary. And so this is the, the beauty of the gospel is you have these perspectives on the truth about Jesus. The conclusion is the same, but they bring different emphases 
from their different perspectives. And so each writer is adding insights to different things to help us better understand the gospel. And so in this passage of John, he's emphasizing a few things here that the other writers left out. They talk about this event, but John focuses on some different things. And here's the things he focuses on that the other writers don't, okay? This just kind of gives you a framework of how we're going to approach these first 11 verses of John 18. In the first place, while the other three writers all mention Judas's kiss of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, John doesn't mention Judas's kiss. He's the only one that doesn't mention it. The other Gospels all mention how Judas betrayed Jesus with the kiss. He doesn't mention it, not because it, obviously not because it didn't happen. I think John wants to emphasize in a unique way the hardness of Judas's heart. And I see this in that John, what he mentions that the other writers don't mention is how Judas used his intimate knowledge of Jesus to guide the enemies of Jesus to arrest him. And he says how Judas stood with the enemies of Jesus as they arrested him. The other Gospels don't say that, but John says Judas stood with the enemies. And I think that's a unique way of emphasizing how hard Judas's heart had gotten. The second thing that John emphasizes um, in this passage is Jesus's divine knowledge, his divine identification of himself as I am, and the divine power at his arrest. Now, of course, the other Gospels are all touching on this. They're all in there, but John is uniquely emphasizing that so the hardness of Judas's heart and the self-revelation of the Son of God before them. And the, the, I, I think the, this emphasis is, keeps in line with what one of John's purposes in the gospel has been and what he's been saying repeatedly, and it's this, that the world rejects the self-revelation of the Messiah, the Son of God. And the world remains in a hardness of heart and unbelief. But there were some who did receive and believed in his name. And it is those that Christ, the Son of God, came to save out of the world by his power. So the world rejects the Messiah. The Messiah presents himself to his elect. They are redeemed and saved by his power. This is what the Gospel of John has been. It's always been communicating the difference between believers and unbelievers and the pinnacle and the, the dividing line of that difference is Christ. What do you do with Jesus? Who is Christ? And so this kind of fits right into that mold. And so the passage is a reminder to us of how hard a sinner's heart can become. 
And it's a glorious reminder to us of how gracious, willing, and able to, for Christ, Christ is to save sinners out of the world. Rejoice, beloved, Christ saves, and he saves those who call on him. And so we hear God's word in John chapter 18 as Jesus now is going eventually to the cross, but here he will first be arrested as he is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back when Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what it tells us about our Savior and what he went through, and how he was betrayed, and how he was arrested and how he was rejected by the world. We know, Father, that we too were once of the world, but we thank you for his power to save, for revealing himself to us that we might see truly who he is. It is only by your grace, Father. We ask for your blessing on this word as we look at it in a bit more depth. You would help us to be strengthened by what we read and convicted, admonished, uh, reminded, and ultimately pointed to Christ our Savior. We ask that you would do that for us in Christ's name. Amen. So you'll see there in the first verse in chapter 18, the phrase John begins this transition with, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and the words he could be referring to John chapter 17, the, the intercessory prayer of Christ, but I think it's better to understand these words that were spoken as referring, referring to the whole section we just looked at in John 14 to 17, the whole upper room discourse as he's addressing his disciples and as he prayed with them. 
All of these words, John says, when he had spoken them, um, our Lord was now prepared to move on in obedience to the Father's will. And so he went out with his disciples, John says, across the brook Kidron to a garden where he often met with his disciples. And this garden, you know, in the other Gospels is the Garden of Gethsemane. So he, he went there with his disciples uh, often to pray and to, to be with them. And D.A. Carson notes uh, that on the night of Passover itself, he says Jewish law required the observing Jews to remain within an extended city limit, and that included Gethsemane, but it excluded this city of Bethany. And so he says that this is likely a walled grove, a walled olive grove in Gethsemane within the city limit, and it's set aside probably by some wealthy supporter uh, for Jesus to use with his disciples during the ministry. And that it's an enclosed garden, you, you can tell by the fact that he entered into it with his disciples, and then he was led out of it when he was arrested. And so Judas had spent three years, think about that, three years as a constant companion of Jesus. Three years he enjoyed the grace of Jesus in his presence. Three years he sat under the wisdom of Jesus in his teaching. Three years he saw the love of Jesus displayed. He was comforted by the presence of Jesus and as Jesus cared for his disciples, for three years he witnessed the miracles of Jesus. Everywhere he went with Jesus, Jesus was, he was healing the blind, he was healing the deaf, he was curing lepers, he rose the dead. All these things, Judas was walking with Jesus and he saw and witnessed the most beautiful loving, gracious, kind, generous human to ever walk the face of the earth. And Judas spent three years with him. And not only did he see all of these things about Jesus, he also preached in Jesus' name. You realize that? Judas preached the gospel in Jesus' name. And so Judas knows all of the ins and outs of Jesus' ministry, all of it, because he's been there, and he's seen it all transpire. And so it's not very surprising that John tells us that he knew this place very well. In fact, I think Judas even prayed with Jesus here. Judas was with Jesus when Jesus prayed with his disciples and they were there. So they had likely spent time together addressing God the Father, praying in the Father's name, praying for the people, praying for the ministry, praying for Israel and for Israel's redemption or whatever they're praying for. I mean, can you get more intimate than that? And so it's this perfect opportunity for Judas 
to lead the arresting cohort to take Jesus into his into custody because Judas knows that this is away from the city center. He, he it's a removed from the crowds of the people and any unwanted attention that may have come from arresting Jesus from the people, Judas tells his cohort, he says, I know where to find him. This is where he's going to be. And so let us go and you can arrest him there. And so with all of this that Judas had, all this privileged exposure to Jesus, the fact remains that Judas himself actually never had any true love for Jesus. Judas had no true faith. For Judas, Jesus had always been a means to an end. And when Judas felt that he had milked all that he could from Jesus, when he had got all that he could from Jesus and Jesus filled his every desire, when he was through with Jesus, he was more than willing to take a stand with the enemies of Christ. And he takes his stand with the world of unbelievers against Christ. He was a man of the world whose heart had become more and more hardened to the truth. And the thing that struck me as I thought about this is I, I thought, partly because of what I shared in the call to worship about that pastor and many other pastors, but you have to remember that Judas didn't start out with this heart of a heart. It's not like Judas began with Jesus saying, you know what, I know one day what I'm going to do to Jesus and I'm just going to wait and buy my time until the right moment. And he patiently waited three years with Jesus's ministry for his right moment to jump on Jesus. It's not how it happens. What happens, what happened to Judas is, he went in as an unbeliever, and he simply left as a more hardened unbeliever. And this is what happens and can happen for us, beloved. Like, like in, not in the sense that you may be here and hearing the gospel preached, and Sunday after Sunday, in God's word, with God's people, singing God's praise, and and when you begin to examine your heart and examine your faith and know, do you trust in Christ as your Savior? One of the gauges that you have to look at is, how am I doing when it comes to the, the sins and the temptations of, of the world? Like, do you find that your appetite is, is still for those things? And Jesus is somewhat on the sidelines. And you're spending time with God's people, but, and you, you find that Jesus is always there, but he's always kind of behind me. And I'm really the one pushing forward and, and, and having a taste for the things of the world. And I don't really so much taste for Christ, but I like Jesus and I like the people. And so I'm moving forward and Jesus 
do you find Jesus is always secondary in your thinking? That's how I think Judas thought. He, he didn't start out necessarily that hard. But I think as he went forward in life, and Jesus kind of a close second, I think the more he tasted sin, the more he got, the more he saw and, and gave into his sin and temptations, I think it just set a harder and harder and harder heart in him. And that's what can happen for people that come and they sit under the gospel weekly but have no real faith. The, uh, J.C. Ryle, he has a way with words. He, he put it like this. He said, the same fire that melts wax will harden clay. And what he's saying is, he's saying, this fire of the presence of Christ with his disciples, it melted the heart of the true disciples. Their heart burned within them. Remember when Jesus rose again and he walked with them on the road? Their heart burned. It yearned to know and to be with Jesus. Their heart was melted by the truth of who Christ is and his word. But that same fire, that same presence of Christ over time can also be used to harden, harden clay. And so don't be under God's word and with God's people and never really take account of whether or not you actually love Christ. And whether or not you are willing to give up anything in this world for following Jesus. This is why Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you are not willing to let go of all the things of this world, Jesus says, you cannot be a disciple of mine. And the fact of the matter is Judas couldn't let it go. He couldn't let go of the world, and he never truly came to Christ until the point where he was willing to take his side with the unbelievers of the world. If we do not love Christ, and if we're not growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, and if we're not willing to forsake the world to follow him, beloved, we may find ourselves more hardened than when we first began. And we may end up finding that we never truly believed in Christ. God forbid. But it happens. And so he didn't start out this way. But bit by bit, the world took his heart. Same thing happened with Israel in the Old Testament. Bit by bit neglected God and his word, and bit by bit moved away from, from the truth. So we need to examine our hearts until we can say with confidence that there is nothing in this world. Can you say, can you truly say there is nothing in this world or what the world will offer me 
that will make me exchange knowing Christ as my Lord and Savior for it. Nothing. If you can say that and you can say, I'd be willing to let it all go just to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, that is, that's faith. But if Jesus is somewhat second, kind of second, a close second, he's kind of really there, but he's second. You need to repent of that. You need to ask God to forgive you for making Jesus second and for not having him as first, your first primary love and devotion and delight. Judas that poor soul. Poor soul. Right now, Jesus says of Judas that he is a son of destruction and that he was prepared for destruction. And Judas is not in the presence of Almighty God. And Judas has received his reward for the desires that he had for this world. He received his 30 pieces of silver. And then he had his 30 pieces of silver in exchange for the Lord of glory. And even the 30 pieces of silver were not enough for him. And so he saw it as blood money. And he even threw that back to the Pharisees who didn't want it. And they wanted to get rid of it as well. And at the end, he went and hung himself. Because he had no hope. And he had no life to live. And he had nothing to look forward to. Because the only person that actually mattered is the one that lovingly reached out to him for over three years with the hope of the gospel and desired him to come to the knowledge of truth. But Judas didn't want it. How many are hearing the gospel day in and day out and Christ is calling them to come to him? He's offering himself. He's saying, I am here and I offer myself to you. And how many reject him time and time again? The world rejects him. And so you see here in Jesus' response to them, he never tried to hide himself. And so even here, as Judas is betraying Jesus, you'll notice here that John says, Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He, Jesus, came forward. Do you, do you understand? I love that. Jesus is the one that came forward to present himself to all of these officers in Judas. Jesus, the light of the world, came forward to make himself once again known to them. 
You see, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. They came with the light of this world to try to find Jesus. Where is Jesus hiding? Judas led us to Gethsemane, and Jesus is here somewhere. So let's bring our torches, let's bring our lanterns, let's bring our weapons, and let's flush Jesus out of Gethsemane so that we might arrest him. This is their thinking. But when they come to the garden, they find that Jesus, the light of the world, actually presents himself to them again. Jesus comes. He's not hiding. He's not under a bushel. He's not under a rock. He hasn't covered himself and cloaked himself. He is wide open for all the world to see. And he says, here I am. I am Jesus. And so he asks them the question. Who do you seek? Who is it you are looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. What do they mean? They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They're looking for this man, Jesus, that's been walking and causing trouble. And we want to arrest him. We want to get rid of him. Where's this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says to them, I am he. He could have said, well, I'm the one you're looking for, or I'm Jesus of Nazareth. But he doesn't. He says, how would you answer? Would you answer like that? Excuse me. I'm looking for... Roman folia, and I answer the door, and they're trying to sell me something. I am he. <laughs> I don't think you'd say it that way. But Jesus does. Where's Jesus? I am he. And what's he saying? Well, if you've been here through the Gospel of John with us, you know what Jesus is saying. The one person that refers to himself repeatedly in the scriptures as I am he is Yahweh, God Almighty, says in Isaiah 40 to 55, over and over again, God, Yahweh, identifies himself repeatedly as I am he. And Jesus in John 8, 58, as well as other passages in the Gospel of John that implied it, refers to himself as I am. I am. Only in those other instances where Jesus in the Gospel of John tells the Pharisees, remember they get mad at him and he says to the, they say, before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. And they get so upset. And what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. Remember that? And Jesus leaves and he, he doesn't get stoned by the rocks. But here, the difference is this. When Jesus then says, I am he, this is Jesus' way of saying, 
I am he, I am, I am God, but their reaction is that they fall back to the ground before him. You see, it's, it's Christ saying, how much more clear do you want me to be? I have told you, and I have not hid myself from you, but I am he, and he puts on display this power that comes from him and his name, and it knocks them over. 200 soldiers, Roman soldiers maybe, myriads of soldiers, strong, burly men who have fought. And Jesus says, I am he, and they, they fall over because of the power of his name and who he is. He gives them another glimpse Another glimpse of his power and authority. And you know what else that reminds us of, beloved? That power, that identification. <laughs> it reminds you of this. Someone with that power to allow himself to be arrested and crucified. So what it tells you is that when Jesus went to the cross, he was not a martyr. It's not like this happened to Jesus against his will. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be arrested, willingly allowed himself to be beaten, willingly allowed himself to be mocked and allowed a crown of thorns to be put on his head. He willingly allowed himself to be lifted up on the cross and for them to nail his hands to that cross and his feet to that cross. He didn't have to, but he did it because he loves the world. And he wants to save sinners. He wants to redeem you, beloved. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants to save you from the judgment that is coming upon the world of people like Judas. And he says, believe on me. Trust in me and you will be saved. God's mercy and his grace towards sinners that Christ would willingly suffer and die in our place. He did it because he so loved the world. And he did it with joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is why when Peter cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus healed the ear, but, but Jesus is saying to them, I told you that I am he. He says, if you seek these men, let them go, because Jesus came to do this. And so he... He does this because of the power of his word. He didn't lose one that he gave 
that God the Father gave him except the son of destruction, Judas. And so Simon Peter, though not understanding this yet, that Jesus is doing this out of love for sinners, out of a love for Peter, Peter still not understanding God, the Lord Jesus' sovereign control over all these events, he takes out his sword, which is probably more like a dagger, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And the other, his name was Malchus. Jesus healed his ear, but here G John doesn't tell us that. But what John does tell us is Jesus tells Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Why? Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, beloved Peter and the disciples are protected by Jesus. Not one hair of our heads will be lost without his permission. We're living under his authority over the world, and no matter how strong the world seems to be, Jesus and his authority is over all of it. He knows our weakness. He knows that we fail to understand his strength and power. But the shepherd was taken but the sheep were permitted to go free in this account. And in our darkest hours and most trying circumstances, in our struggle, like the struggle of Peter, Jesus has his eye on us, and we live in complete safety under his care. And so Simon's not getting it, so he cuts off the servant's ear. But Jesus says, not only is he protecting us, but he came for this purpose, to go to the cross. This is the Father's will for Jesus. This is what the Father desired for Jesus. And so we all have to learn what Peter didn't learn here, but what we'll see he learned next week. We have to learn to do what Jesus did in the sense that we must learn not to try to cut off the ears of our enemies and to fight the world with the weapons of the world, but we must learn to fight this battle in this world with the weapons of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him and to trust his word, to put ourselves under the care of Christ and submitting to the Father's will for us. And when we learn to live our lives in that kind of way, like Christ, when he's submitting to the will of the Father, then we will learn to live by faith in the Son of God. And I'm struggling with that. And I know you're struggling with that. But that is what we're called to do. And so Christ here rebukes Peter. Peter's learning, but Jesus knows that it is his mission to drink this cup of wrath that the Father has given him to drink. What a glorious Savior, a loving Savior, a merciful Savior. Let the world reject him. What's that one hymn we sing, Andrew? Though the world despise him, yet I will, I will worship him. You know what? Let Judas's reject Jesus. But us, beloved, we are called 
to believe, to love him, to follow him, to serve him. And by God's grace, he has done that for us because except for the grace of God, there go I. Are you responsible for killing Jesus on the cross? You better believe it. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We sided with the world. We sided with Judas. We sided with the enemies of God. And we deserve to be sons and daughters of destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy, he saved us. Not because of our good works done in righteousness, but because of his. That is the hope of the gospel. And so let us rest. Rest. In the arrest. How's that? Rest in the arrest of Christ Jesus. He's arrested, crucified for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in that you, the great I am, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the word of God made flesh. You spoke the world into existence. By the power of your word, all things came into being. And by the power of your word, you uphold the universe and all things. You are so mighty. You are so strong. You are, you are the most almighty. You are the most of all, of all of creation. You are above all of creation. There is no one like you. And you, you don't have to answer to anyone. There is no greater law above you. There is no one that you have to give an account to. There is no one who will hold you under their judgment. There is no eye that is looking upon you or down upon you, for you are above all things. You are the most glorious that there is, the most righteous, the most holy, the most precious, the most beautiful. There is none like you in all of creation. We cannot find anyone more glorious or praiseworthy than you are, almighty God. So pure that you can't even look upon sin. And yet so loving that you humbled and left humbled yourself and left aside all of that glory that belongs to you to take on flesh. Lord Jesus, you laid aside what was rightfully yours to walk in the world that you created, a world that hated you, a world that rejected you, a world that wanted you dead, a world that wanted to put you on a cross and get rid of you. You came into a world of hurting sinners, of lepers, and, and those that were crippled, and those that were sick with 
with infirmities from their birth. You, you came into this world that was fallen and dirty. And you lived among us and you saw the hungry and you saw those that were orphaned and you saw those that were widowed and you saw those that were in pain and suffering and had nothing to live for and no hope in this world. And you looked upon the world with compassion and grace. And you looked upon the world with love. Because you wanted to come into the world to save sinners. And Lord Jesus, we confess that we are those sinners. That we were destitute and we were lost in our sin. And we were living in this world as if we had no one to answer to. We were living by the power of our own strength and we were indulging our own flesh and we were living after the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we pursued the things of this world like poor Judas pursued. But you showed us mercy and you showed us grace, oh God. You loved us and you were willing to do what we couldn't do on our own and you went to the cross and you allowed yourself, Lord Jesus, to be arrested. Oh Lord, we can't thank you enough. And we know there's nothing we can do, Lord Jesus, to pay you back. And no matter how good we live, Lord Jesus, we know that we are always going to fall short of the glory of God. Lord, help us not to rely on our own wisdom and strength. Help us, Lord Jesus, not to pull out the weapons of this world and think that we can fight our way into the kingdom of God. Help us not think that apart from you, we can make it into heaven on our own. For we know it's not possible, but yet our flesh and the devil wants to lie to us and wants to tell us that it is. Oh, forgive us. Strengthen us, oh God. Help us to be a people that leave this place built up in our faith and strengthened, realizing that you have done it all for us and, and we need not worry. We can put our daggers back in our sheath and we can trust that you have done all that is necessary for our salvation. Lord Jesus, help us to be faithful in this world Help us to walk uprightly. Help us to be obedient and loving like you were and are. Help us to be kind and patient with one another. Help us, O oh God, to forgive those that have sinned against us. Help us not to hold grudges or to be bitter. Help us to be more humble. Help us, O oh God, to help those that are in need. Not to be greedy, O oh God. Not to be selfish. 
not to be self-centered. Help us, O oh God, to have the mind of Christ that we might not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Help us, O oh God, to leave this place with a message for a dying world. To leave this place not keeping the gospel only internal, but making it external. Help us to be bold that we might proclaim the gospel and tell of the love of Christ to those that are lost. Help us to reach out to all types of men and women. Not to neglect the lowest in exchange for the highest. Not to look at people with favoritism, but to look at people with the eyes of love. In other words, Lord, help us to be like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.